Hello, and welcome to the Social Protection Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Sharp. In today's episode, we're looking at how to design regular social protection programs to safeguard and mitigate against gender-based violence, or GBV. How can we ensure that social protection delivery chains are safe and inclusive for women, as well as for people with diverse gender identity and expression, and take opportunities to address the dynamics that underpin violence to prevent it from occurring? This is part two in our three-part series on social protection and gender-based violence, produced by socialprotection.org and DFAT, with support from FCDO and UNICEF. With me today, I have Shalini Roy, Senior Research Fellow at the International Food Policy Research Institute, that's IFPRI, and Emily Dwyer, who is founder and co-director of EdgeEffect, an organisation that assists humanitarian and development organisations to work in genuine partnerships with people of diverse sexual orientation, gender identity and expression, and sex characteristics. Just a note on that term, the acronym is SOGIESC, which you'll hear throughout this interview, along with the term or the acronym LGBTQI+, which many people would be more familiar with. Welcome, Emily and Shalini. Thank you. Yes, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be with you both. So to guide our discussion today, we're going to be loosely stepping through what's known as the social protection delivery chain or the various stages of design and implementation for programs. But to start us off, I'll give a quick recap of how Amber Peterman described the drivers of gender-based violence in the first episode in this series. At the community level, that includes the norms that accept violence against women, and then at the individual or interpersonal level, poor mental health, alcohol and other substance abuse, economic stress and other factors have also been linked to violence risk. And those economic factors have particular relevance for social protection programming. Before we go on though, Emily, I wanted to ask you first about the drivers of violence against people with diverse sexual orientations, gender identities and expressions. How are these drivers similar or different? One of the first things to remember is that a lot of people with diverse sexual orientations, gender identities and expressions and sex characteristics are also people who are women and girls. And so there's a lot of crossover there. And the gendered norms that you've been talking about in the series are ones that a lot of people with diverse socias are already needing to deal with. But on top of that, there's uh, violence, discrimination and exclusion that people experience because they might live in a family, they might live in a society, they might live in a context where their sexual orientation, gender identity, expression or sex characteristics are not considered acceptable. And so if you live in a family or a society or a context where there's compulsory heterosexuality, then if you're not heterosexual, different things can happen to you. If you live in a society where there's compulsory cis-normativity, where you're expected to have a gender identity that matches your sex assignment where that doesn't change, then there's no room there for someone who's trans or gender diverse. And as a consequence, then there can be discrimination, violence and exclusion. That can take many different forms. It can take the form of physical violence. It can take the form of exclusion from all, all kinds of networks and all kinds of opportunities. It is a, a form of uh, economic violence. It, it can be the way that people talk to you or make you feel. It can be violence, which is with all families. It can be violence within relationships. For example, if you've been forced into a heterosexual relationship and you're not a heterosexual person. Thank you. That's really helpful. 
Shalini, coming to you, for people who are responsible for designing social protection programs to empower women and reduce violence and address gender-based violence, what are some of the key considerations at this kind of initial design phase? So very quick background. In the brief that Amber and I wrote, we made design recommendations based specifically on what design choices might sort of activate some evidence-based pathways for how cash transfers can reduce IPV. Pathway one through which cash can introduce IPV is through economic security. Cash transfers increase economic security. This reduces poverty-related stress, improves emotional well-being for everyone in the household, including men. This reduces the risk of IPV. Pathway two is through reduced conflict. Cash transfers reduce day-to-day conflicts, for example, arguments due to simply not having enough money for daily needs, which is a trigger for IPV. Pathway three is through women's empowerment and men's reaction to that. Cash transfers or complementary programming can empower women. If men feel threatened, this could increase the risk of IPV. But if the design and context are such that men accept these changes, which is actually what's seen on average in much of the evidence, this can lead to decreases in IPV. Pathway four is through intergenerational effects. Cash transfers to households with children reduce children's exposure to witnessing IPV, which reduces the chances of them perpetrating IPV or having IPV perpetrated against them later in life. Also, if cash transfers reach adolescent girls, this can increase their educational attainment, which reduces their risk of IPV. And pathway five is through access to services and community visibility. So bringing it back to targeting. Thinking of the economic security and conflict pathways for reducing IPV, we recommend really ensuring to include households and individuals who are less economically secure and more prone to conflict. So those with tighter budgets, larger households, polygamous households, evidence suggests they have more scope to benefit on these economic security and conflict pathways from cash transfers. Within polygamous households in particular, We recommend classifying co-wives as distinct households so that each co-wife qualifies for her own transfer to maximize potential for reduced conflict and avoid increasing conflict. Now, thinking of the pathway around women's empowerment and men's reaction, we recommend prioritizing women as named recipients and to proactively minimize chances of male backlash by building community support for women's participation. And that's particularly in settings where there are questions about the acceptability of women being the named recipients. Then thinking of the pathway around intergenerational effects, we recommend ensuring to include households with children and adolescents to kind of activate the reductions in IPV through the next generation. Many programs already do prioritize including households with young children, but we recommend putting more emphasis on not discontinuing those benefits as children grow into adolescence and they actually face growing vulnerabilities, including those related to IPV. And finally, just to be clear, all of these targeting recommendations are not just that only these types of households or individuals should be included, but that within budget constraints, programs should try to not exclude them. So in other words, we should really try to minimize exclusion errors that might otherwise drop these households and individuals. Emily, if the goal of a social protection program is to ensure the inclusion of people with diverse SOGIESC and reduced discrimination. What do you think designers should be thinking about as they're establishing these design parameters and targeting approaches? To pick up on what Shelley was just saying, so firstly, trying to ensure that programs that are targeted generally across populations 
don't have features that effectively exclude people with diverse genders, sexualities, or sex characteristics. And so that means understanding aspects of those people's lives, reasons why they may feel like it's possible for them to be part of the cash assistance program or some other form of social protection program, reasons why it might be difficult, or programs which have conditionalities. Those conditions, the training that they might be asked to do, the work that they might be asked to do, might involve places where they don't feel safe or that they just don't feel as relevant to their lives. It is possible that in some contexts there might be the potential for actually targeting of different LGBTQ people or people with diverse CPS for a particular program. That again will vary very hugely by context. It will be questioned about whether that kind of targeting is a safe thing to do, whether there's a community of people that are more recently identifiable a group of people that feel that it's safe for them to identify themselves to whether it's running this program. It's probably also important to think about are there ways that, that we think about delivery of aid or the way that we organize that might uh, unintentionally be carrying some of those assumptions that we talked about. For example, when we think about a family, what, what kind of units are we thinking about? When we think about a household, what kind of units are we thinking about? And would they be eligible to, for, for assistance under a particular program? But then you need to understand people's life courses. You need to understand, for example, that the LGBTQ people might have been excluded from their families, excluded from schools, that they might not have been able to obtain work. They certainly might not be working in the formal sector. They might have a history of working in an informal sector, which in a crisis, that informal work kind of rapidly disappears. There are people that maybe hasn't had the opportunity to build up savings. And so when there is a crisis, it means they might not be able to pay rent. That it means that they might need to go back to families where they've experienced violence in the past. It might mean that if they do get clash programs, they don't have to put themselves back in, in those difficult positions, or that they can pay the rent, and that they can continue living where they are. They don't have to maybe undertake sex work, or they don't have to undertake other kind of work that might put them at additional risk. They can just live with dignity in that context. I was really struck. By detail in a paper that you produced, we don't do a lot for them specifically, which we'll link to in the show notes for this episode. Just the point that it is so common for social protection programs to use the household as the unit of targeting. That's really fundamental. But then just to consider what a household looks like, who even is included or excluded from a household. That was a really interesting kind of point of reflection for me. There are lots of different kinds of households. Um, but it might be that there's a diverse genders or sexualities or sex characteristics within a household that might be eligible for a social protection program or cash assistance. But because of the attitudes of other people within that family or household to that person, that money that is provided to that family then doesn't flow equally through that family. And that's something that we're familiar with if we were just talking about gender in general. And then you might have entirely different family structures as well, ones where there is a, a same-sex relationship at the heart of that family. And so you know, for the purposes of the government or the legislation or an aid organisation, maybe that's not a structure that they then consider a family. And so then that then falls outside of the kinds of programs that we're talking about. Shalini, just briefly, what about some of these other sort of building blocks of social protection program design, you know, frequency, adequacy, duration, 
conditionalities. How should we be thinking about those to maximise the chances of having a positive impact on women's empowerment and on reducing IPV and GBV? So coming back to those pathways for how cash can reduce IPV, including the pathway about reducing stress and however you characterize the household or family unit, as Emily describes, we argue it's essential to ensure transfers are of meaningful value to improve economic security and emotional well-being for that unit. In terms of frequency and duration, there is limited rigorous evidence on what happens when you vary these holding fixed the total amount transferred. But evidence suggests it's likely that smaller, more regular transfers over a longer duration will influence the IPV pathways more than larger one-time lump sum transfers. We also flag the importance of providing clear communication about how frequent transfers will be and how long the duration will be, also ensuring that the delivery of benefits is then actually predictable to reduce stress around that uncertainty. Thank you. Such a great point because, of course, these are sort of fundamental points for social protection programs that are trying to address almost anything and yet reflecting back on how uncertainty around money not only perhaps prevents you know, children from eating adequately, but also may cause the economic stress in the household that leads to violence, just really underscores how important these things are to consider. Moving into implementation and delivery considerations, Emily, during social protection program implementation, how have you seen social protection programs or humanitarian programs discriminate against people with diverse SOGESC or put them at risk of harm? And how can we really think about safeguarding against those risks? Yeah, I think we do need to look at where the places are that, that there may be opportunities for LGBTIQ people to fall through the gaps. There are certainly situations where there's just direct discrimination, and so there might well be government officials that dislike LGBTIQ people and make decisions that disadvantage LGBTIQ people. But there's also all kinds of indirect discrimination that happens, where people go about implementing programs in ways that are apparently neutral, but don't meet the needs of LGBTIQ people because of what's happened to us over the course of a life. So that might include understanding, for example, whether LGBTIQ people are part of data which is being used to who's in need. It might include understanding reasons why people may or may not be able to register for a program. If a person doesn't have an identity card because they can't get an identity card because the government has issued identity cards to trans or gender diverse people, then they might just fail to have some basic information that might be a requirement for registration as part of a program. Or they might need to go to a particular place, go back to their hometown, go to officials and be subject to discrimination in ways that make them just unlikely to actually register for that program or go through the process of getting the documentation required. It might be that a program is designed in such a way that delivery mechanisms might require things that they don't have. So it might be, again, that they don't have a mobile phone, maybe because they can't afford one, or maybe because in order to get a mobile phone, you need to register a SIM and on the back of the starting point. So all of those and more, I guess, are the kinds of factors that people who are designing and implementing programs might need to take into account and think about all of that involves understanding more about our lives and taking those positive steps. Thank you. Shalini, when we're thinking about women facing risks in implementation, what are those risks and how should we be working to mitigate those? 
So I'll caveat that our brief specifically focuses on light touch efforts or small tweaks. We think gender transformative approaches that aim to really shift gender norms are very promising, but they absolutely require sufficient capacity or resources, knowledge of the local gender context, vulnerabilities within that context, and many large-scale social protection programs are simply not going to have those. So our practical view in the brief is that it's actually less risky for programs that can't do this well to simply not attempt shifting norms. I'll also note that our framing in the brief is really around kind of women um, without much nuance there, because that's what implementers have usually asked us about. But I think Emily's discussion really raises some interesting points about how some of this should be seen more broadly, recognizing the risks faced by LGBTIQ people and diverse identities. So on your specific question, women do face risks, but also opportunities. So we note that implementers shouldn't see possible risks as a reason to not promote women's participation, but rather be proactive about mitigating potential risks, including related to local norms. So, for example, as mentioned before on targeting, we recommend prioritizing women as recipients of cash and complementary programming, but taking proactive approaches to reduce potential for backlash. Um, an example is to build community support for targeting women by involving gatekeepers, like on-the-ground implementation partners, community leaders, to be vocal about supporting this in community forums. Now, if the program is in a context where local women's organizations are flagging that there are exceptionally strict gender norms that would create resistance to women being the main recipient, it's worth still thinking about whether there are ways to allow them to still be the main recipient, to promote those empowerment effects while reducing the chance of resistance. For example, framing the transfer as being for the well-being of the household, but putting the resources in the hand of the woman. Or if women being named the main recipient is viewed as really being absolutely infeasible, potentially authorizing multiple household members to make transactions or simply providing messaging that benefits are for the entire family unit. Again, these would not be shifting gender norms per se, but they might allow women to control more resources in that setting than they otherwise would. And we do see evidence that programs of this kind of framing can still empower women, which again is one of the pathways. In terms of other ways to proactively mitigate risks for women, Implementers can at minimum ensure that paypoint locations and times of day, sites for any training or complementary programming, as Emily says, that these are all convenient and safe for women. Thank you. Shalini, you just mentioned women's organizations, and you both write about the potential and the value of involving civil society organizations, whether that's women's groups or LGBTIQ plus groups or advocacy groups in the delivery of programs. But just reflecting, it's not often the way that big national transfer programs delivered through government systems work. I'll ask you first, Emily, why should program designers or officials be looking to work more with non-government organisations and groups? Well, firstly, it's a way of understanding more about those people's lives. So organisations that our rights holders organisations that, that work within communities, where those organisations do exist, they can be an amazing source of information. Those organisations can also act in some ways as, as intermediaries between governments and other organisations that may be organising these programs and all GPCRQ people. They can also help to specifically identify people that, that might be particularly vulnerable just you know, because of the nature of their lives. 
in particular with their casual systems. It may be that, that they can help people to go through processes of gaining an identity card, of, of establishing a bank account, uh, of, of getting access to a mobile phone. I think there are some challenges though. Some LGBTIQ organizations are probably better networked in some parts of communities and levels. So for example, there's a history of LGBTIQ organizations being funded through HIV and AIDS mechanisms, which means that those organizations might have stronger networks amongst key populations for that work. And so that might be, for example, gay men, bisexual men and trans women. It might be that cisgendered lesbian, bisexual, queer women and trans men and others are not necessarily part of those networks. And so it's really important to think about well, which LGBTIQ organizations or which combination of LGBTIQ organizations are going to be the ones that the help you reach those networks of LGBTIQ people. I agree with everything Emily says. Those organizations know the lives of people there. They're knowledgeable about who's vulnerable. They feel trust. They know how to support people. I would also say programming is often more sustainable when it works with and through what's already there. In the case of women's groups specifically, these can not only support implementation synergies, they can also build women's social capital and solidarity, which can also be a pathway to reducing risks of IPV. That said, I think Emily raises a really important point that we really want to make sure these groups are inclusive. Moving on to another really key dimension of social protection programming, to think about kind of systems linkages and complementary programming. In our first episode, we talked a lot about how social protection programs offer opportunities, in some cases almost sort of a starting point or a scaffold from which you can build out complementary interventions for key groups, especially for women. Shalini, I know you've done a lot of research into specific programs, including these programs that have strong complementary dimensions. But the question I'd like to ask you is, as we look to social protection programs to kind of add on a lot of these components, reflecting that that also adds costs and complexity, how do you reflect on the balance to strike here between design and resourcing of perhaps the core features of social protection and the complementary dimensions that can add a lot of value. So there is a lot of potential for PLUS programs to broaden and strengthen impacts of social protection programs. But yes, we hear cash transfer implementers say their programs are sort of seen as Christmas trees and everyone wants to hang their different ornaments on. So in our brief, we argue that PLUS programs or even system linkages should really only be built into social protection program if there are clear implementation or impact synergies. Otherwise, given the coordination costs, it's better to just implement these kind of vertically. If high quality services are available in the setting, often they're not, but if they are, we recommend just setting up linkages rather than creating new complementary program components within the social protection program. And I'll also reiterate that not all social protection programs have to be gender transformative to have impacts on IPV or GPV, particularly when resources and expertise are limited. We would argue that implementers should focus on the components that align with their capacities and their core program objectives, while also strengthening IPV pathways, like promoting economic security, reducing inter-household conflict, promoting women's empowerment, and so on. So this could be through more core programming, like nutrition trainings, livelihoods trainings, economic interventions, women group-based interventions, and so on. Emily, as you sort of outlined at the start, 
discrimination against LGBTIQ plus people is very much underpinned by gender norms, expectations, what's acceptable in the society and the risks associated with transgressing those norms. What's the experience of addressing these kinds of norms for LGBTIQ plus people through different kinds of programs? And do you think there's anything that social protection programs could actually be learning from other efforts? So I think one of the challenges is that the evidence-based really is still being built, intentionally engaging with LGBTQ people is something which is well, new for probably people within a variety of government contexts, but also within UN agencies and on a variety of other international and civil society organisations. And so how far organisations feel confident going is probably going to vary hugely. There may be contexts where there's now significant societal stigma where because of the nature of criminalization or the lack of non-discrimination legislation or laws which are selectively enforced against LGBTQ people, that it's not a context where transformative programming is necessarily something that you want to just sort of jump into. With social protection and cash assistance programs, sometimes it's just enough to include LGBTQ people, whether that is a program which is a general population program, whether it's associated with a particular thematic area, or whether it's a program where it is appropriate to, to address LGBTQ people separately. And those people just being included can be incredibly powerful and can change their lives. I think you've both made some interesting points there about transforming gender norms is difficult and in, in many contexts risky and requires expertise and really careful consideration and, as you say, a lot of consultation and understanding of people's lived experience. But also that just getting a social protection program to adequately reach people or to ensure that it is inclusive can not only bring the benefits of that program, but as Shalini was saying, in the case of certainly women's the evidence around women and gender-based violence can be supportive and helpful in and of itself. So we can work at a lot of levels here, I think. Just to wrap up, Shalini, coming to you first, if we were to take a big step back, social protection systems are generally, as we've discussed, they're designed to address poverty or vulnerability. They're designed to support vulnerable people at different stages of their lives, to cushion people and families from shocks. If there are objectives around women's empowerment or including people with diverse sojiesk or any of these things, there would be secondary or supplementary if they're included at all. But as a thought experiment, if you were designing a feminist social protection system or a, a system that had women's empowerment as a primary driving objective, what would that look like? Thanks. So here, I think I have no general answer as it will depend so much on the context. In the brief, for example, our recommendations are really small tweaks. In my perception, a feminist social protection system would really be trying to address the salient root causes of gender inequality in a particular context, including norms. I do think programs with clear gender-related objectives and solid funding could build rich complementary programs that intentionally try to promote empowerment and reduce GPV, but these need to be informed by experts on gender norms and violence in the local context. So for example, what are the salient root causes in that context? that a social protection program could realistically address? Is it norms around acceptability of violence, gendered control of resources or decision-making, restriction on women's mobility, interactions with peers, unpaid care work, something else? 
what are the right entry points in that context? Who are the right people in the household unit or community to engage with what framing and so on? So I think the short answer would be that I should not be the one designing it. Designing a feminist social protection system for me would mean prioritizing this kind of deep consultation and the formative stage with local experts who really know gender in that context and prioritizing having enough funding and capacity to really follow their guidance. So I think that there are many LGBTIQ organizations, activists, advocates who would consider their work feminist and use feminist methodologies. And so I think for us, that means understanding power. It means understanding the reasons why people might be excluded from aspects of society, from families, from being able to access programs because of the assumptions that are made in those societies or because of the views or the ways that societies are structured, expectations of people. I think sometimes the humanitarian or development sectors and whatever context, um, social protection or cash assistance programs are being designed and implemented, that LGBTIQ people are, are considered you know, separately, maybe you know, a little bit strange, weird, hard to address group of people and so not quite sure what to do. Maybe we've got to the point where we understand that they need to be included, but oh, I'm not quite sure how, how to deal with them. And I think that doesn't take into account that LGBTIQ people have all kinds of ca characteristics in their lives and they can be addressed through all kinds of different programs. Um, you know, many LGBTQ people or people with diverse yes, will also women. So if their programs with all girls, then those programs, you know, could and should address lesbian and bisexual and transgender and intersex and queer women. And sometimes addressing LGBTQ people through the context of a, a women and girls program might be a safer way and a more effective way of addressing those people and all of the complexity of their lives rather than forcing them into it. You know, a standalone LGBTIQ program. The same way many LGBTIQ people might also be young people. Um, and so that we could work with LGBTIQ people through that framework. That would mean maybe as an organization, thinking through your child protection policy and ensuring that your child protection policy includes the kinds of factors that are relevant for LGBTIQ people who are young, who might have experienced discrimination within their families, like at schools, online from a variety of other sources. But LGBTIQ people are whole people. And so whether it's you know, a program that has a health orientation or an employment orientation or, or some other kind of orientation, you can think about how to include us in those programs. We'll have to wrap it up there. Thank you so much to both of you, Emily Dwyer and Shalini Roy, for joining me on the Social Protection Podcast today. It's been wonderful to be here and to be part of this series it was my pleasure, and it was a pleasure to meet Emily and hear your discussion. Thanks. And listen out for the third episode in this series, which will look at how social protection programs can support survivors to escape violence, coming at the end of March. Before we go, we like to end each episode with some quick wins. We ask our guests to bring in some recommendations for research, news or events that have sparked their interest and that we think you should know more about. Today we have two guests, Alessandra Heinemann, who is Senior Social Protection Specialist and Gender Lead, and Palak Rawal, who is Gender and Social Protection Consultant, both of them from the World Bank. Welcome, Alessandra and Rawal. 
Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you for having us over, Joe. It's great to be here. So in our episode today, we've just talked about some of the practical ways to design social protection programs to safeguard and prevent gender-based violence. For people who want to know more about the how-to, those practical steps, you've recently launched a new online course. Yes. Um, so as your listeners know, a growing body of evidence finds that cash transfers reduce violence against women and children, even when the cash transfer was not designed with violence prevention in mind. In 2021, we published a toolkit called Safety First, How to Leverage Safety Nets to Prevent GBV. Um, the response to the toolkit was fantastic, so we decided to turn it into an e-learning course. The course takes the learner through the impact pathways on how cash transfers affect GBV to try and enable all of us to design social protection programs in a way that activates these impact pathways. And to add to that, the course takes less than 90 minutes to complete, and it's available on the World Bank's Open Learning Campus. It's free for anyone who wishes to take it. The way that it's structured is, it starts with the introduction and evidence on safety nets and GBV, followed by how you can prevent GBV through different entry points at every stage of the delivery chain. The course goes in depth to look at the various decision points at these stages, such as who should receive the benefit, should you pay benefits manually or digitally? What should be the transfer size and frequency? And how do all of these decisions impact GBV? The course aims to equip social protection practitioners with the tools and knowledge to prevent and mitigate GBV through simple design and implementation tweaks along the delivery chain. We hope you have a chance to check out the course. Great. And we'll make sure to put a link to the course in the show notes. You've also each brought in a recommendation to share with our listeners. Alessandra, what's your pick? Uh, so as your listeners may be aware, at the World Bank, we're in the process of updating our corporate gender strategy. And I think what's really exciting about this exercise is that looking back over the past decade, the SP sector has really come a long way in terms of understanding how our programs affect gender outcomes and being more deliberate about how we design our programs so that we amplify those positive outcomes for women and girls. At the moment, we're putting the finishing touches on a note that will serve as the social protection contribution to the gender strategy, outlining how social protection contributes to gender equality and what we see as priorities for the coming decade. So I would say stay tuned for that. Thank you. And Palak, you've brought in a book recommendation. It's called Invisible Women, Data Bias in a World Designed for Men by Caroline Criado-Perez. This came out a couple of years ago. What stood out about this book to you? So I would say it's the one book that I read which had a significant impact on my understanding of gender. Uh, as the name suggests, the book discussed the numerous ways in which women are forgotten and how that bias affects our everyday lives. One example from the book that really caught my attention and got me thinking about this issue was how it explained when cars are designed, they are designed around the body of, say, a quote-unquote reference man. So although men are more likely to crash, women involved in collisions are nearly 50% more likely to be seriously hurt. Even in the world of social protection, we see how a crisis like the COVID-19 impacts women much differently than men. Where in 2021, for example, data showed that women were 2.4 times more likely than men to report losing paid work in order to care for others. So data like this tells us that we need policies that take into account the specific needs of women and the barriers faced by them. 
And I think one of the first steps to do that is through collection of sex disaggregated data in every sector. Thank you. It is a great pick and a great book. Uh, And as we speak about data bias and gender disaggregated data, I'm reminded of when we had Alessandra on this podcast at the end of 2021. Um, And at that time, it was actually your New Year's resolution, I think, for 2022, Alessandra. We talked briefly about the World Bank's Aspire database, which collates household survey and administrative data to compare social protection program coverage expenditure and so on. And at that time, Alessandra, you pointed out that the data in Aspire generally wasn't sex disaggregated, and that's something that you were planning to work on. Yes, I'm happy to report that the Aspire team has been hard at work. The Aspire database contains both household and admin data. And so where the underlying data source allows for sex disaggregation, the Aspire team has been working on um, making those sex disaggregated data available in the database. Now, the issue, of course, is that most household surveys do not collect information about the receipt of social protection benefits on an individual basis. Um, So in parallel to the work happening within the Aspire database, we are also busy with partners advocating for the revision of household survey modules. In fact, in April of this year, we're planning on for what we're calling um, Aspire Gender Policy Conclave, and we hope to showcase the work that the Aspire team has done up until now and to gather partners and counterparts and see where we might be able to do more in the near future. Yeah, it is really interesting how far back you need to go in order to ensure that this data can be collected. And then once it has been collected, how widely a tool like Aspire is used to do large-scale analysis of social protection programs and trends. Thank you, Palak and Alessandra, for making the time to join us on the Social Protection Podcast today. Thank you, Joe. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having us. Pleasure to be here. And thank you for joining me for the Social Protection Podcast. We are a production of socialprotection.org. Follow us on Twitter at SP underscore Gateway and find us on Facebook, YouTube and LinkedIn. Subscribe to this podcast via your favourite podcast provider and leave a review. Back soon. See you then.